Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, we are continuing with um, The Horror from the Hills. A quick uh, quick little thing about that. I apparently am the dumbest dummy who ever dumbed. And when I read this a couple years ago, I recall it being three or four chapters, but it actually turns out that it's ten. So uh, I've got everything plotted out and planned, and I know when I'm doing what chapters. So this is going to be the next, uh, so it's going to take a total of seven weeks. So this is going to be going for the next six weeks. Um, After that, we are moving back to short form stuff because I'm tired of doing long form stuff. All right. Last thing before we get into the story, there is some racism in this story. Um, It's not like, it's not like, I mean, racism is bad on, on every level, any amount that you, that you use it. Um, but there's no, there's no N words that come up in this one. It's mostly just referring to Asian people as Orientals and then everyone calling everyone else a Chinaman. So that is, and you know, product of its era, but that doesn't make it right. And racism is always wrong, regardless of when it's said and where it's said and who says it. So, um, I'm not cutting it out. I'm not editing it out. I'm leaving it in because I believe that to turn a blind eye to it or to paint over it, to cover it up. Uh, is to do a disservice to those who have fought against it and those who have suffered under it. And lastly, while we're on the subject of racism, there is a moment in the story that features an Asian character talking. And uh, because I cannot do an Asian accent very well, I decided to not even go for it. Uh, I went with just a neutral accent uh, for their dialogue uh, because I figured... I would rather just do no accent than do a bad accent or an insulting accent. So I decided to go with just a neutral accent. So uh, just, you know, know about that. All right, let's get on with the story. Chapter 2, The Atrocity at the Museum Algernon Harris emerged from the BMT subway at the 59th Street and 5th Avenue entrance and began nervously to pace the sidewalk in front of a large yellow sign which bore the discouraging caption, Buses do not stop here. Harris was most eager to secure a bus, and it was obvious from the expectant manner in which he hailed the first one to pass that he hadn't the faintest notion he had taken up his post on the wrong side of the street. Indeed, it was not until four buses had passed him by that he awoke to the gravity of his predicament and began to propel his person in the direction of the legitimate stop zone. Algernon Harris was abnormally and tragically upset. But even a man trembling on the verge of a neuropathic collapse can remain superficially politic, and it isn't surprising that when he ascended into his bus and encountered on a conspicuous seat his official superior, Dr. George Francis Scollard, he should have nodded, smiled, and responded with an unwavering amiability to the questions that were shot at him. "'I got your telegram yesterday,' murmured the president of the Manhattan Museum of Fine Arts, and I caught the first train down. Am I too late for the inquest? Algernon nodded. The coroner, a chap named Henry Weigel, took my evidence and rendered a decision on the spot. The condition of Ullman's body would not have permitted of delay. I never before imagined that... that putrefaction could proceed with such incredible rapidity. Scollard frowned. And the verdict? Heart failure. The coroner was very positive that... Anxiety and shock were the sole causes of Ullman's total collapse. But you said something about his face being horribly disfigured. Yes, it had been rendered loathsome by by plastic surgery. Weigel was hideously agitated until I explained that Ullman had merely fallen into the hands of a skillful oriental surgeon with 
sadistic inclination in the course of his archaeological explorations. I explained to him that many of our field workers returned slightly disfigured, and that Allman had merely endured an exaggeration of the customary martyrdom. And you believe that plastic surgery could account for the repellent and gruesome changes you mentioned in your night letter, the shocking prolongation of the poor devil's nose, the flattening and broadening of his ears. Algernon winced. I must believe it, sir. It is impossible sanely to entertain any other explanation. The coroner's assistant was a little incredulous at first, until Weigel pointed out to him what an unwholesome precedent they would set by even so much as hinting that the phenomenon wasn't pathologically explicable. We would play right into the hands of the spiritualists, Weigel explained. An officer of the police isn't at liberty to adduce an hypothesis that the district attorney's office wouldn't approve of. The newspapers would pounce on a thing like that and play it up disgustingly. Mr. Harris has supplied us with an explanation which seems adequate to cover the facts, and with your permission, I shall file a verdict of natural death. The president coughed and shifted uneasily in his seat. I am glad that the coroner took such a sensible view of the matter. Had he been a recalcitrant individual and raised objections, we should have come in for considerable unpleasant publicity. I shudder whenever I see a reference to the museum in the popular press. It is always the morbid and sensational aspects of our work that they stress, and there is never the slightest attention paid to accuracy. For a long moment, Dr. Scollard was silent. Then he cleared his throat and recapitulated, in a slightly more emphatic form, the question that he had put to Algernon originally. But you said in your letter that Almond's nose revolted and sickened you, that it had become a loathsome greenish trunk about a foot in length, which continued to move about for hours after Almond's heart stopped beating. Could your operation hypothesis account for such an appalling anomaly? Algernon took a deep breath. I can't pretend that I wasn't astounded and appalled and... and frightened, and so lost to discretion that I made no attempt to conceal the way I felt from the coroner. I could not remain in the room while they were examining the body. And yet you succeeded in convincing the coroner that he could justifiably render a verdict of natural death. You misunderstood me, sir. The coroner wanted to render such a verdict. My explanation merely supplied him with a straw to clutch at. I was trembling in every limb when I made it, and it must have been obvious to him that we were in the presence of something unthinkable. But without the plastic surgery assumption, we should have had nothing whatever to cling to. And do you still give your reluctant assent to such an assumption? Now more than ever. And my assent is no longer reluctant, for I've succeeded in convincing myself that a surgeon endowed with miraculous skill could have affected the transformation I described in my letter. Miraculous skill? I use the word in a merely mundane sense. When one stops to consider what astounding advances plastic surgery has made in England and America during the past decade, it's impossible to disbelieve that the human frame will soon become more malleable than wax beneath the scalpels of our surgeons, and that beings will appear in our midst with bodies so grotesquely distorted that the superstitious will ascribe their advent to the supernatural. And we can adduce more than a surgical miracle to account for the horror that poor Allman became without for a moment encroaching on the dubious domain of the superphysical. Everyone knows how extensively the ductless glands regulate the growth and shape of our bodies. A change in the quantity or quality of secretion in any one of the glands may throw the entire human mechanism out of gear. Terrible and unthinkable changes have been known to occur in the adult body during the course of diseases involving glandular instability. 
We once thought that human beings invariably cease to grow at 21 or 22. But we now know that growth may continue till middle age and even till the very onset of senility and that frequently such growth does not accumulate in a mere increase in stature or in girth. Doubtless you have heard of that rare and hideously deforming glandular malady, acromegaly. It is characterized by an abnormal overgrowth of the skull and face and the small bones of the extremities, and its victims become, in a short time, tragic caricatures of humanity. The entire face assumes a more massive cast, but the overgrowth is most pronounced in the region of the jawbones. In exceptional cases, the face has been known to attain a length of nearly a foot, but it is not so much the size as the revolting primitiveness of the face which sets the victims of this hideous disease so tragically apart from their fellows. The features not only grow, but they take on an almost ape-like aspect, and as the disease advances, even the skull becomes revoltingly simian in its conformation. In brief, the victims of acromegaly become, in short, while almost indistinguishable from very primitive and brutish types of human ancestors, such as Homo neanderthalensis, and the unmentionable enormous-browed caricature from Broken Hill, Rhodesia, which Sir Arthur Keith has called the most unqualifiedly repulsive physiognomy in the entire gallery of fossil men. The disease of acromegaly is perhaps a more certain indication of man's origin than all the missing links that anthropologists have exhumed. It proves incontestably that we still carry within our bodies the mechanism of evolutionary retrogression, and that when something interferes with the normal functioning of our glands, we are very apt to return, at least physically, to our aboriginal status. And since we know that a mere insufficiency or superabundance of glandular secretions can work such devastating changes, can turn men virtually into Neanderthalers or great apes, what is there really unaccountable in the alteration I witnessed in poor Ullman? Some Oriental diabolist merely ten years in advance of the West in the sphere of plastic surgery, and with a knowledge of glandular therapeutics no greater than that possessed by doctors Noel Patton and Schaefer, might easily have wrought such an abomination. Or suppose, as I have hinted before, that no surgery was involved. Suppose that this fiend has learned so much about our glands that he can send men back and back through the mists of time, back past the great apes and the primitive mammals and the carnivorous dinosaurs to their primordial sires. Suppose, it is an awful thought, I know, suppose that some creature closely resembling what Ullman became was once our ancestor. That a hundred million years ago, a gigantic Batrachian shape with trunk-like appendages and great flapping ears paddled through the warm primeval seas or stretched its leathery length on banks of Permian slime. Dr. Scollard turned sharply and plucked at his subordinate's sleeve. There's a crowd in front of the museum, he muttered. See there. Algernon started and, rising instantly, pressed the signal bell above his companion's head. We'll have to walk back, he muttered despondently. I should have watched the street numbers. His pessimism proved well-founded. The bus continued relentlessly on its way for four additional blocks, and then came so abruptly to a stop that Dr. Scollard was subjected to the ignominy of being obliged to sit for an instant on the spacious lap of a middle-aged stout woman who resented the encroachment with a furious glare. "'I've a good mind to report you,' he shouted to the bus conductor as he lowered his portly person to the sidewalk. "'I've a damn good mind. Let it pass, sir.' 
Algernon laid a pacifying arm on his companion's arm. We've got no time to argue. Something dreadful has occurred at the museum. I just saw two policemen enter the building, and those tall men walking up and down on the opposite side of the street are reporters. There's Wells of the Tribune and Thompson of the Times, and... Dr. Scollard gripped his subordinate's arm. Tell me, he demanded, did you put the... the statue on exhibition? Algernon nodded. I had it carried to Alcove K. Wing C. last night. After the inquest on poor Ullman, I was besieged by reporters. They wanted to know all about the fetish, and of course I had to tell them that it would go on exhibition eventually. They would have returned every day for weeks to pester me if I hadn't assured them that we'd respect the public clamor to that extent, at least. Yesterday afternoon, all the papers ran specials about it. The news graphic gave it a front-page write-up. I remained at my office until eleven and all evening, in half-minute intervals, some emotionally overcharged numbskull would ring up and ask me when I was going to exhibit the thing, and whether it really looked as repulsive as its photographs, and what kind of stone it was made of, and... Oh, God, I was... I was too nervous and wrought up to be bothered that way, and I decided it would be best to satisfy the public's idiotic curiosity by permitting them to view the thing today. The two men were walking briskly in the direction of the museum. Besides, there was no longer any necessity of keeping it in the office. I had had it measured and photographed, and I knew that Harrison and Smithstone wouldn't want to take a cast of it until next week, and I couldn't have chosen a safer place for it than Alcove K. It's roped off, you know, and only two paces removed from the door. Sinny can see it all night from his station in the corridor. By the time that Algernon and Dr. Scollard arrived at the museum, the crowd had reached alarming proportions. They were obliged to fight their way through a solid phalanx of excited men and women who impeded their progress with elbow-thrusting aggressiveness and scant respect for their dignity, and even in the vestibules they were repulsed with discourtesy. A red-headed policeman glared savagely at them from behind horn-rimmed spectacles and brought them to a halt with a threatening gesture. "'You gotta keep out!' he shouted. "'If you ain't got a police card, you gotta keep out!' "'What's happened here?' demanded Algernon authoritatively. Guy's been bumped off. You ain't got a police card. You've got a... Algernon produced a calling card and thrust it into the officer's face. I'm the curator of archaeology, he affirmed angrily. I guess I've got a right to enter my own museum. The officer's manner softened perceptibly. Well, then I guess it's all right. The chief told me I wasn't to keep out any of the guys that work here. How about your friend? You can safely admit him, murmured Algernon with a smile. He's president of the museum. The policeman did not seem too astonished. He regarded Dr. Scholar dubiously for a moment. Then he shrugged his shoulders and stepped complacently aside. An attendant greeted them excitedly as they emerged from the turnstile. It's, it's awful, sir, he gasped, addressing Dr. Scholar. Sidney has been murdered. Knifed, sir. He's all cut and mangled. I shouldn't have recognized him if it weren't for his clothes. There's nothing left on his face, sir. Algernon turned pale. When, when did this happen? he gasped. The attendant shook his head. I can't say, Mr. Harris. It must have been some time last night, but I can't say exactly when. The first we knew of it was when Mr. Williams came running down the stairs with his hands all bloodied. That was at eight this morning, about two hours ago. I just got in, and all the other attendants were in the cloakroom getting into their uniforms. Well, that is all except Williams. Williams usually arrives about a half hour before the rest of us. He likes to come early and have a chat with Sinny before the doors open. The attendant's face was convulsed with terror, and he spoke with considerable difficulty. I was the only one to see him come down the stairs. 
I was standing about here, and as soon as he came into sight, I knew that something was wrong with him. He went from side to side of the stairs and clung to the rails to keep himself from falling, and his face was as white as paper. Algernon's eyes did not leave the attendant's face. Go on, he urged. He opened his mouth very wide when he saw me. It was like as if he wanted to shout and couldn't. There wasn't a sound come out of him. The attendant cleared his throat. I didn't think he'd ever reach the bottom of the stairs, and I called out for the boys in the cloakroom to lend me a hand. What happened then? He didn't speak for a long time. One of the boys gave him some whiskey out of a flask, and the rest of us just stood about and said soothing things to him. But he was trembling all over, and we couldn't quiet him down. He kept throwing his head about and pointing toward the stairs, and foam collected all over his mouth. It was ghastly. "'What's wrong, Jim?' I said to him. "'What did you see?' "'The worm of hell,' he said. "'The devil's awful mascot.' He said other things I can't repeat, sir. I'm a God-fearing man, and there are blasphemies it's best to forget you ever heard. But I'll tell you what he said when he got through talking about the worm out of hell. He said, Sinny's upstairs, stretched out on his back, and there ain't a drop of blood in his veins. We got up the stairs quicker than lightning after he told us that. We didn't know just what these crazy words meant, but the blood on his hands made us sure that something pretty terrible had happened. They kind of confirmed what we feared, sir, if you get what I mean. Algernon nodded. And you found Sinny dead? Worse than that, sir. All black and shrunken and looking as though he'd been wearing clothes about four sizes too large for him. His face was all gone, sir. All eaten away, like. We picked him up. He wasn't much heavier than a little boy and laid him out on a bench in Corridor H, i never seen so much blood in my life. The floor was all slippery with it. The big stone animal you had us carry down to Alcove K last night was all dripping with it, especially its trunk. It made me sort of sick. I never liked to look at blood. You think someone attacked Sinny? It looked that way, Mr. Harris. Like as if someone went for him with a knife. Must have been an awful big knife, a regular butcher's knife. That ain't a very nice way of putting it, sir, but that's how it struck me. Like as if someone mistook him for a piece of mutton. And what else did you find when you examined him? Well, we didn't do much examining. We just let him lie on the bench till we got through phoning for the police. Mr. Williams did all the talking, sir. A look of relief crept into the attendant's eyes. The police said we wasn't to disturb the body further, which suited us fine. There wasn't one of us didn't want to give poor Mr. Sinney a wide berth. And what did the police do when they arrived? Asked us about a million crazy questions, sir. Was Mr. Sinney disfigured in the war? And was Mr. Sinney in the habit of wearing a mask over his face? And had Mr. Sinney received any threatening letters from Chinamen or Hindus? And when we told them no, they seemed to get kind of frightened. If it ain't murder, they said, we're up against something that ain't natural. But it's got to be murder. All we have to do is get a hold of the Chinamen. Algernon didn't wait to hear more. Brushing the attendant ungratefully aside, he went dashing up the stairs three steps at a time. Dr. Scollard followed with ashen face. They were met in the upper corridor by a tall, loose-jointed man in shabby, ill-fitting clothes who arrested their progress with a scowl and a torrent of impatient abuse. "'Where do you think you're going?' he demanded. "'Didn't I give orders that no one was to come up here? I got nothing to say to you. You're too damn nosy. If you want the lowdown on this affair, you gotta wait outside till we get through questioning the attendants.' 
See here, said Algernon impatiently. This gentleman is president of the museum, and he has a perfect right to go where he chooses. The tall man waxed apologetic. I thought you were a couple of newspaper johns, he murmured confusedly. We haven't anything even remotely resembling a clue, but those guys kept popping in here every ten minutes to cross-examine us. They're worse than prosecuting attorneys. Come right this way, sir. He led them past a little knot of attendants and photographers and fingerprint experts to the northerly part of the corridor. As the body, he said, pointing toward a sheeted form which lay sprawled on a low bench near the window. I'd be grateful if you gentlemen would look at the poor lad's face. Algernon nodded, and lifting a corner of the sheet peered for an instant intently into what remained of poor Sinny's countenance. Then, with a shudder, he surrendered his place to Dr. Scollard. It is to Dr. Scollard's credit that he did not cry out. Only the trembling of his lower lip betrayed the revulsion which filled him. He was found on the floor in the corridor about two hours ago, explained the detective, but the guy who found him isn't here. They got him in a straitjacket down at Bellevue, and it doesn't look as though he's going to be much help to us. He was yelling his head off about something he said came out of hell when they put him in the ambulance. That's what drew the crowd. You don't think Williams could have done it? murmured Algernon. Not a chance, but he saw the murderer all right, and if we can get him to talk... He wheeled on Algernon abruptly. You seem to know something about this, sir. Only what we picked up downstairs. We had a talk with one of the attendants, and he explained about Williams and the Chinaman. The detective's eyes glowed. The Chinaman? What Chinaman? Is there a Chinaman mixed up in this? It's what I've been thinking all along, but I didn't have much to go on. Ah, I fear we're becoming involved in a vicious circle, said Algernon. It was your Chinaman I was referring to. Willie said you were laboring under the impression that all you had to do to solve this distressing affair was to catch a Chinaman. The detective shook his head. It's not as simple as that, he affirmed. We haven't any positive evidence that a Chinaman did it. it. Might have been a Jap or Hindu or even a South Sea Islander. That is, if South Sea Islanders eat rice. Rice? Algernon stared at the detective incredulously. That's right, in a bowl with long sticks. I'm no authority on that. At, at, at analogy, but it's my guess they don't use chopsticks much outside of Asia. He went into Alcove K and returned with a wooden bowl and two long splinters of wood. All those dark spots near the rim are bloodstains, he explained as he surrendered the gruesome exhibits to Algernon. Even the rice is all smeared with blood. Algernon shuddered and passed the bowl to Scollard, who almost dropped it in his haste to return it to the detective. Where did you find it? The president spoke in a subdued whisper. On the floor in front of the big stone elephant. That's where Sinny was killed. There's blood all over the elephant, if it's supposed to be an elephant. It isn't strictly an elephant, said Algernon. Well, whatever it is, it could tell us what Sinny's murderer looked like. I'd give the toes off my left foot if it could talk. It doesn't talk, said Algernon decisively. I wasn't wisecracking, admonished the detective. I was simply pointing out that that elephant could give us the lowdown on a mighty nasty murder. Algernon accepted the rebuke in silence. There ain't no doubt whatever that a Chinaman or Hindu or some crazy foreigner sneaked in here last night, set himself down in front of that elephant and began eating rice. Maybe he was in a church-going mood and mistook the beast for one of his heathen gods. Kinda looks like an oriental idol. The ferocious-looking kind you sometimes see in Chinatown store windows. Algernon smiled ironically but unquestionably unique, he murmured. The detective nodded. Yeah, larger and uglier looking, 
but a heathen statue for all that. I bet it actually was worshipped once. Hindu, Chinese, I wouldn't know, but it sure has that look. Yes, admitted Algernon, it is indubitably in the religious tradition. For all its hideousness, it has all the earmarks of a quiescent eastern divinity. There ain't anything more dangerous than interfering with an oriental when he's saying his prayers, continued the detective. I've been in Chinatown raids, and I know. Now here's what I think happened. Sidney's standing in the corridor, and suddenly is the Chinaman muttering and mumbling to himself in the dark. He's naturally frightened, and so he rushes in with his pocket light where an angel would be fearing to tread. The light gets in the Chinaman's eyes and sets him off. It's like putting a match to a ton of TNT to throw a light on a Chinaman when he's squatting in the dark in a worshipful mood. So the Chinaman goes for the kid with a knife. He feels outraged in a religious way, and really himself, thinks he's avenging an insult to the idol. Algernon nodded impatiently. There may be something in your theory, Sergeant, but there's a great deal it doesn't explain. What was it that William saw? Nothing but Sinny lying dead in the corridor. Nothing but Sinny looking up at him without a face and that awful heathen animal looking down at him with blood all over its mouth. Algernon stared. Blood on its mouth? Sure, all over its mouth, trunk, and tusks. Never seen so much blood in my life. That's what Williams saw. I don't wonder it crumpled the kid up. There was a commotion in the corridor. Someone was sobbing and pleading in a most fantastic way a few yards from where the three men were standing. The detective turned and shouted a curt command. Whoever that is, bring him here. There came an appalling, ear-harassing shriek, and two plain clothesmen emerged around a bend in the corridor with a diminutive and weeping oriental spread-eagled between their extended arms. "'The Chinaman,' muttered Scollard in amazement. For a second, the detective was too startled to move, and his immobility somehow emboldened the Chinese to break from his captors and prostrate himself on the floor at Algernon's feet. "'You are my friend,' he sobbed. "'You are a very good man.' I saw you in green fire dream. In dream when big green animals came down from mountain, I saw you and Gotama Siddhartha. Big green animals all wanted blood, all very much wanted blood. In dream, Gotama Siddhartha said, They want you. They have determined to make you all dark fire glue. I said, No, please, I said. Then Gotama Siddhartha let fall jewel of wisdom. Go to museum. Go to big museum round block and big green animal will eat you quick. He will eat you quick before he make American man dark fire glue. All night I have sat here. All night I said, eat me, please. But big green animal slept till American man came. Then he moved. Very quickly he moved. He gave American man very bad hug. American man screamed and big green animal drank all American man's blood. The little Oriental was sobbing unrestrainedly. Algernon stooped and lifted him gently to his feet. "'What is your name?' he asked to soothe him. "'Where do you live?' "'I'm boss, big laundry, down street,' murmured the Chinaman. "'My name is Siaho. I am a good man, like you. "'Where did you go when, when the elephant came to life?' The Chinaman's lower lip trembled convulsively. "'I hid back of big white lady.' In spite of the gravity of the situation, Algernon couldn't repress a smile. The big white lady was a statue of Venus Erycine, and so enormous was it that it occupied almost the whole of Alcove K. 
It was a perfect sanctuary, but there was something ludicrously incongruous in a Chinaman seeking refuge in such a place. One of the detectives, however, confirmed the absurdity. That's where we found him, sir. He was lying on his back, wailing and groaning and making faces at the ceiling. He's our man, all right. We'll have the truth out of him in ten minutes. The chief sergeant nodded. You bet we will. Put the braces on him, Jim. Reluctantly, Algernon surrendered Sia Ho to his captors. I suggest you treat him kindly, he said. He had the misfortune to witness a ghastly and unprecedented exaggeration of what Eddington would call the random element in nature. But he's as destitute of criminal proclivities as Dr. Scollard here. The detective raised his eyebrows. I don't get it, sir. Are you suggesting we just hold him as a material witness? Algernon nodded. If you try any of your revolting third-degree tactics on that poor little man, you'll answer in court to my lawyer. Now, if you don't mind, I'll have a look at Alcove K. The detective scowled. He wanted to tell Algernon to go to hell, but somehow the inflection of authority in the latter's voice glued the invective to his tongue, and with a surly shrug, he escorted the group into the presence of Shanyar Fawn. Sanguinary baptism becomes some gods. Were the gracious figures of the Grecian pantheon to appear to us with blood upon their garments, we should recoil in horror, but should we think the terrible Mithra or the heart-devouring Huitzil-Opochitli a trifle unconvincing if they came on our dreams untarnished by the ruddy vintage of sacrifice? Algernon did not at first look directly at Shanyar Fawn. He studied the tiled marble floor about the base of the idol and tried to make out in the gloom the precise spot where Sinny had lain. The attempt proved confusing. There were dark smudges on almost every other tile, and they were nearly all of equal circumference. Right there is where he found the corpse, said the detective impatiently, right beneath the trunk of the elephant. Algernon's blood ran cold. Slowly, very slowly, for he feared to confront what stood before him, he raised his eyes until they were level with the detective's shoulders. The detective's shoulders concealed a portion of Shanyar Fawn, but all of the thing's right side and the extremity of its trunk were hideously visible to Algernon as he stared. He spoke no word. He did not even move, but all of the blood drained out of his lips, leaving them ashen. Dr. Scollard was staring at his subordinate with frightened eyes. You act as though... Good God, man, what is it? It has moved its trunk. Algernon's voice was vibrant with horror. It has moved its trunk since since yesterday, and most hideously. I, I cannot be mistaken. Yesterday it was vertical. Today it's in a slightly upraised position. Dr. Scollard gasped. Are you sure? he muttered. Are you absolutely certain that the trunk wasn't in that position when the god arrived here? Yes. Y yes. Uh, not until today. In the excitement no one has noticed it, but if you'll call the attendant— Wait. The president had started to do that very thing, but Algernon's admonition brought him up short. I shouldn't have suggested that, he murmured in Scollard's ear. The attendants mustn't be questioned. It's all too unutterably ghastly and inexplicable and mad. We've got to keep it out of the papers. Seek a solution secretly. I know someone who may be able to help us. The police can't. That's obvious. The detective was staring at them pityingly. You gentlemen better get out of here, he said. You aren't used to sights like this. When I was new at this game, I made a lot of mistakes. I could hardly stand the sight of a dead man, for instance. Used to hurry things along when there was no real need for haste, which is just about the worst mistake you can make at the preliminary examination stage.
With an effort, Algernon mastered his agitation. You're right, Sergeant, he said. Dr. Scollard and I realize that this business is a little too disturbing for sane contemplation, so we'll retire, as you suggest. But I must warn you again that you'd better think twice about treating poor Sia Ho as a convicted murderer. In the corridor, he drew Dr. Scollard aside and conversed for a moment urgently in a low voice. Then he approached the detective and handed him a card. If you want me within the next few hours, you'll find me at this address, he said. Dr. Scollard is returning to his home in Brooklyn. You'll find his phone number in the directory, but I hope you won't disturb him unless something really grave turns up. The detective nodded and read aloud the address on Algernon's card. Dr. Henry C. Dr. Henry C. Imbert, FRS, FAGS. A friend of yours? he asked impertinently. Algernon nodded. Yes, Sergeant, the foremost American ethnologist. Ever hear of him? To Algernon's amazement, the sergeant nodded. Yeah, I got kind of interested in ethnology once. It was on a queer case about two years ago. An old lady got bumped off by a poisoned arrow, and we had him in for a powwow. He's clever, all right. He gave us all the dope as soon as he saw the corpse. Said a little negro had done it. One of them African pygmies you read about. We followed up the tip and caught the murderer just as he was giving the little fellow a cyanide cigarette to smoke. He was a shrewd Italian. He got the pygmy in Africa, hit him in a room down on Houston Street, and sent him off to rob and bump off old ladies. He was as spry as a monkey and could shinny up a drain pipe on the side of a house in ten seconds. If it hadn't been for Imbert, we'd never have got our hands on the guy that owned him. Dr. Scallard and Algernon descended the stairs together, but in the vestibule they parted the president proceeding down the still-crowded outer steps in the direction of a bus whilst Algernon sought his office in Wing W. When Imbert sees this, Algernon murmured as he extracted a photograph of Shanyar Fawn from his chaotically littered desk, he'll be the most disturbed ethnologist that this planet has harbored since the Pleistocene age. And that was chapter two of, uh, what am I reading? And uh, that was chapter two of The Horror of the Hills by Frank Belknap Long. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything you want to say, any comments, questions, suggestions, please feel free to write into uh, the Weird Tales podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Weird Tales Pod. And um, feel free to check out Into the Black by William Meikle. Uh, it's a collection of 14 Lovecraftian horror stories read by me. Uh, it's really good. I really, I really enjoyed recording it. So go ahead and check that one out. Um, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Um, I have recently started a thing on there where if you, uh, if you are a patron, regardless of tier, uh, you get the episode a little bit early. You get it like a, a few days, a couple days early. Um, so, uh, that's going to be a thing that I'm going to be working on now, uh, just to put myself under even more pressure and responsibility than all the stuff that I already have to do. So, and on the subject of my patrons, a very special thank you to Hermagoras. Thank you so much. Pontus Fredrickson, I really appreciate the support. Andrew Buchanan, thank you. Damon Bowles, thank you. Marco Van Putin, thank you so much. Ryan Patrick, thank you. Ineptus Astartes, thank you. Matthias Hansen, thank you. Alder Riley, thank you so much. Mark Vincent, thank you. Eric Braun, thank you. And Chris Callie, thank you all so much for your support. It means so much to me that you're willing to do that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a good week, and I will see you next time. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the bloops. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weird Tale. Wow, that's coming in super hot. Let's push this microphone back a little bit. Chapter 2. 
the atrocity at the museum. My cat is in here too, by the way. So this could just be a lot of fun. Hey, come here. Come on. Do you want to go outside? Because if you go outside, I'm closing the door and then you can't come back in, okay? All right. He went outside. I just got home from work and my cat is always so excited. He always comes and runs and meets me at the door. And uh, I'm always like, hey, buddy, what's up? And try to pet him and he runs away. And I came in here to do some recording and uh, and he came running in and he was all happy to be in here. And then like I opened the door and he was just like, bye and left. And so I'll lay in bed and my cat will like poke at me until like because he, he's like, I want attention. Hey, give me attention. Hey, give me attention. And then I'll reach over to pet him and he'll just walk away and I'll be like, nah. And then like I'll put my hand back to whatever it was like I was doing on my computer and he'll just come up and he'll start poking at me again. And my cat is an asshole. It isn't, strictly speaking, an elephant, said Algernon. Oh, whatever it is, it... Well, whatever it is, it could tell us what Sydney's murderer looked like. I'd give the toes off my left foot if it could talk. Okay. There's a... there's Okay, this is the police... This is the detective talking, but he didn't put a paragraph break in there, so it looked like it was Algernon the whole time. And then the next paragraph also had Algernon speaking in reply to the thing that I thought Algernon was saying. Anyway, shut up. <laughs> 